0: Here's
1: Johnny! I'll be back. And you will know my name is
0: the
1: Lord! I'm walking here! I'm walking here!
0: I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome
1: to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. As always, I'm your not always actual host, Mike, and join me for this mini-sode
0: is, oh my god, she's eating electricity! Jamie, say hello, Jamie. I'm the cable company. Like, 20 people in the audience are laughing hysterically right now. I know,
1: I'm very proud of proud of you for that. I, I just like how topical reference, and you saw my topical reference to the movie we're actually talking about, which was James Wan's Malignant, by the way. You saw that, and you raised me a niche reference. <laughs> I like it. That's, it that's what I'm the good at. I flip.
0: I flip relevancy. Exactly. It starts the
1: podcast off on a completely uneven kilter immediately. And that's what Box Office
0: Pulp's all about. That's what Box Office Pulp's all about. It's what Malignant's all about. So it's even more appropriate.
1: Yeah, Malignant, the movie I'm pretty sure James Wan tricked Warner Brothers into giving him (laughs) lots and lots of money for.
0: Yeah, I don't think I've seen a situation quite like this since... Zack Snyder's Watchmen, where I've just giggled after seeing a movie thinking <laughs> he made them spend all that money to do that. But in the best possible way. Uh, let's just say, uh, like, immediately at the beginning of this, we fucking loved Malignant. That best might come away being the best horror film of the year, maybe my favorite movie of the year. If something doesn't absolutely knock my socks off in the next few months. I've already watched it twice, which
1: says a lot. It's only been, it's been less than a a week. So, and it holds up the second time because going in the first time, we knew nothing about it. Like, I never even, I've never bothered to watch the trailer for it because I thought like, you know what? James Wan horror, I saw the poster, I'm sold. Like James Wan horror movie, that's it. That's all I actually need. So I thought, you know, uh, the word "jalo" is is being bandied about a lot. I don't want to know anything. So I like how I know nothing. I don't even know the log line for the movie. So you'd think like that experience of the movie unraveling in in front of me could not be matched a second time when you know everything going in. No, if anything, it may even work better because you just kind of giggle the entire time. The second go around instead of constantly being blindsided or or thinking like, no, I think I'm finally wrapping my head around this movie. But you don't. You never wrap your head around the movie where, spoilers, she then pulls her skull open (laughs) at the back and there's a brain face there. And then one of the greatest action scenes of the year of the last several years plays out in a weird, like, comic book police station with a super villain tumor man person who could control electricity and has super strength.
0: Who is also an old school Giallo slasher with gloves and a golden dagger.
1: I love this movie so much. I don't understand how Juan and the and the writers pulled this off. And I don't mean like pull this off and like it's so ridiculous, but it's the fact it's ridiculous but even tempered
0: it's never ridiculous to a point where it feels like it's not taking its own world seriously. It has fun with its premise. It has a lot of fun with the gore and uh with just fucking with the tone of the movie. You never feel like malignant is a joke to itself though, which I think is uh the the line that keep that keeps the movie from straying into territory which would just make it just completely uneven.
1: Yeah. Or even um, kind of like Stuart Gordon kind of satire type of territory, which it could be. Instead, it's what Juan has called it in its aftermath, which is just a love letter to horror fans and the horror genre. Like, it's it's not really made for a general audience at all. It's made for straight-up hardcore horror fans. It's got all the references to not tropes or specific movies, but just subgenres of horror where it plays with the Jallo, it plays with kind of like the the normal like slasher film, uh it plays with psychological thriller. It, but it takes itself just seriously enough with this heightened reality that reminds me of what he was doing more so with um Dead Silence than something like Insidious. And even saw to uh, to a slightly lesser degree. And it's this uh like horror fantasy like gritty worlds it's almost seven inspired you know the way fincher played with that word a little bit in seven where it's uh, everything is very takes itself very seriously is very realistic but also heightened to a degree where you're not quite ever in a normal
0: reality everything is just a little bit too operatic to be to quite be a reality, everything's just a bit, uh, a bit more Wagnerian in scale than it would be in the real world. Yeah, which
1: is, which is, why is such a I great think it was way also...
0: to, to offset an audience too, because that particular uh, uh th- that particular mood is very very unnerving because it just it just feels like you're watching the real world where something spectacular and awful is going to happen at any point.
1: That's what was uh, so brilliant, I think, about the the opening of the film both the uh pre-credit sequence and just the first real scene is you cut to this you know european horror um institute on a mountainside outside of seattle apparently and it's just everyone has this reanimator like dialogue you know there's like looking at the camera everything's just off kilter camera wise lighting is going crazy my People God, yelling, he
0: speaks!
1: It's time to cut out the cancer, looking dead onto camera, like it's—it's it's so operatic and big and just completely insane. And then you go into this opening credit sequence, and you come out, and you're in a quiet Seattle suburb. A pregnant woman slowly gets out of a car, and then you have this domestic drama scene that gets very serious, becomes domestic horror very quickly with domestic violence. And there's none of that dialogue. There, there's none of this operatic archness going on. And I think those two sequences t- against each other plays up what is arguably James Wan's greatest strength, which is he his tone is without tone. And honestly, I think the only time he's ever... Waned in that is with something like Aquaman, where he didn't really play with the t- with differing tones mixing together very much. He just kind of went for like one straight, uh, kind of campy thing.
0: Yeah, I adore Aquaman, but yeah, that movie is full on bonkers and doesn't really relent from that mode ever, even when it probably should.
1: It's a it's a really good Power Rangers movie in uh, tone wise, but um. I do like Aquaman, don't get me wrong. But um but malignant is like everything outside of that that Juan has learned, both in that heightened reality, that uh fantasy look, but also the more hard edged domestic stuff that he went into more and I know it's weird to say this about like the conjuring, but it's true. And you know, the more batshit action stuff of the Fast and the Furious movie that he did I mean, that that really feels like that action scene more than anything else, the way the camera is swooping around. And we got a little bit of that camera action um, in Aquaman as well. I I love the way Juan does an action, uh, like a big geographic action sequence, like in a large, in just an open room location. The way he moves the camera around 360, we never quite lose where we are we're, we're able to keep track of everyone, but the camera's always moving. But we kind of stay in Masters, which I really like.
0: Well, Juan, more so than any director doing horror or action, probably action for that matter. Uh, he understands the importance of staging an environment and of the environment's relationship to characters. like m- More than just about any actor or, or any director I know. Like you were talking about the ridiculous comic book prison cell that we find ourselves in in the third act. That cell is a character, and it, it, within the, in the couple of minutes that you spend there, you get such a good ex, a good understanding of the exact geometry of that cell, all of the landmarks of that cell, exactly how big it is. So whenever everything goes to shit with that blood-and-guts action scene a few minutes later, it hits all the much more harder, because that environment might as well like be a level in a video game to you. Yeah. And that, that's notab- notab- notable throughout the entire film. I mean, the James Wan trademark haunted house we spend a lot of the first act of the movie in, that's a character. The castle asylum that we hardly even see like there's like two establishing shots and some corridors that sticks in your mind long after this movie is over. Not not to mention the Giallo uh, police chamber there in <laughs> towards the, end of the film with Gotham its with, its, <laughs> with the, I don't know, its fucking Frank Miller mood lighting pouring through. I
1: I think that was I would like to see now after watching this. Why are more horror movies set in Seattle? because the city has such a unique aesthetic to it where you get that raininess and the fog that you would see in, you know, in a in a horror city, but it doesn't have the necessarily, the, the geography or the overall kind of vibe you would get from that. So I think it actually, it's like the city itself represents Juan's horror tone, where it's like this, uh, you know, ooky spooky atmosphere but the tone is almost bohemian and down to earth and very normal and and domestic and and Juan of course being fucking brilliant to go hey the Seattle underground exists that's a cool setting for some horror shit you can like starting at the top of a build like uh an apartment building going out to the street down the building you know then through through a basement, into a boiler room, and then underground into an old, like, eighteen hundred city that's buried just beneath. Like, that's a brilliant just traversing of landscape for a sequence, for a chase sequence. You essentially go to this other-world version of where you started the scene out from.
0: Not to mention, you have... Uh, the historical backstory that New Seattle was built upon the ruins of old Seattle RoboCop style, which is both you know perfect subtext for a story like this and also a thing that happened.
1: Oh, yeah, I'm I, I'm glad to see this in a movie. If you folks at home, if you ever get a chance, look up um, photographs from when Seattle was when New Seattle was being built on top of old Seattle. It's fucking awesome. It's one of my favorite, like, historical things. Honestly, it's so surreal to see skies to see these buildings being built, um, like these brick buildings. But there's no street, and so instead you just see this other street underneath that's still operating while the rest of the city's being built. So you see people going on ladders or, or walking across boards from one building to the other because there's nothing that exists
0: yet. It's so fucking cool. It's like watching them construct new New York from Futurama.
1: (laughs) But um, going back to uh, Juan's strengths, one of my honestly favorite things is he... All of this madness, Juan still wants to put, like, heart in there in some way. And even though it's not, it's you know, it's not exactly very strong, but I like how it's this... I don't want to say it's anti, like, blood... But the idea of yeah blood kind of be careful what you wish for with bl- blood connections that doesn't necessarily mean you have real family like storyline going on in the background.
0: Yeah, not to mention, and again, this is a this is not exactly a message movie, but no. but there there is something to be said about the fact that malignant is in many ways basically the story of a very passive woman who's just let things happen to her her entire life, finally make the choice to take agency in her life and fight against the forces that want to control her and her body. Yeah. But again, again, I, you know, not the most uh, mind-blowing uh, point for a movie to have, but I think a very strong one, one that really works to... It works a lot with what's already there, so it doesn't feel like bullshit whenever it clicks together that that's the movie you're watching. It's like, oh, okay, yeah. I buy that.
1: It adds it adds a good amount of backbone to place all the meat on, which is important for a movie like this where you get lost in the madness. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with just, you know, hey, here's Gideon being an arch supervillain for, you know, two hours. That's great. That's completely fine on its own. But Juan is definitely not that kind of filmmaker to just fall back on that. And I, I think that's something that should be appreciated even with, with, with everyone kind of getting lost in just how much fun, how much of a blast Malignant is, from a filmmaker standpoint, something to always appreciate about Juan is he will come at everything from a character and, and human standpoint. It's something that's through pretty much all of his movies. It's why I think Death Sentence is one of his most underrated films, because that is such a character journey.
0: Oh, yeah. Can can we stop uh, for just a moment and say, fucking go back, rewatch Death Sentence. That got thrown under the bus for being just another uh, Death Wish clone at the time. That Death Wish wishes it was that movie. Yeah,
1: it's probably, honestly, it's the best revenge movie, I think, Uh, flat out. Sorry, John Wick. There's something so cold and not cool about what's going on i still kind of reveling in the uh, the actionness of it. Again, great Bacon and great Kevin Bacon performance as well.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, even a, a a great movie like the original Death Wish still wants you to feel a little bit pumped up with uh, the growing violence that Charles Bronson starts enacting in. It is heartbreaking watching Kevin Bacon ruin himself throughout that movie. Like he. It's like watching Cranston become final season Walter White in two hours.
1: Yeah, it was de- it was definitely forgotten for not being Saw, essentially. People wanted Juan to be typecast as a horror director, which is ironic considering he's a horror master now, but also has kind of equally done horror and other genres. I'd love to see him do a romantic comedy. <laughs>
0: I want him to have, like, the reverse career tra- trajectory of Justin Lin. <laughs> yeah, I think that's something I know Juan was saying uh, in the lead-up to Malignant. Just how he can't help but find himself being uh, painted into these corners with his career. After *Saw*, he was the torture porn guy, which is a title he absolutely did not deserve. Now with The Conjuring, he's the haunted house guy. Yeah. So you see him like doing more out there things like Aquaman and now uh malignant. I I love a James Wan that wants to prove himself. Like I really admire the fact that at no point in his career has he gotten complacent.
1: No, never. And he he gets creative when you try to place him in those boxes. That that's happened almost entirely throughout his career, when he was the torture porn guy, he went, okay, I'm going to do Death Sentence. When people got mad he did Death Sentence, he then pivoted and went, okay, I'll do Insidious. If I'm going to be you know, the the torture porn horror guy, I'm not going to do torture porn because I never did that to begin with. <laughs> that was Never Saw anyway. But I'll, okay, I'll go back to horror, and I'm going to do Insidious. And then I'm going to do the Conjuring. Also, now I'm going to follow that up with Fast and the Furious. And of course, you know, um, between Saw and, and uh, Death Sentence, of course, was uh, Dead Silence. But the original Giallo. Yeah, and I think it's cool that there's a lot of Dead Silence in Malignant. Not, uh, it's not as overtly Argento uh, fantasy Giallo fantasy horror. Um, as Dead Silence was attempting, that was definitely. Hey, um, I attempted something really early on in my career that I was not ready to try. <laughs> this is me now being ready to try it.
0: I have something other than a, le- than a monster and a tone to go with.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, though, please, everyone, if you have not gone back and reappraised Dead Silence, please do. It's Get honestly those- really fucking good.
0: Oh, it's a hoop. Get those Netflix numbers trending. We might get a sequel one day. We need more, more Mary, Mary Shaw content.
1: Yes, she's not getting any younger.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of, one thing that has made, remained consistent with Juan's career has been his ability to knock out iconic movie monster after iconic movie monster. And I had to say Gabriel is probably Juan's most blatant attempt at making a like capital M like horror movie monster since Mary Shaw. Like yeah. this is this feels very much like uh Wes Craven creating Horace Pinker specifically to be the new Freddy Krueger and I'm 100% here for that. I love deliberate movie villains. Give me costumes and themes. Uh, the only thing le- that uh, is dragging Gabriel down is he doesn't have a cool uh, slasher name. He could have been Meat Face.
1: <laughs> yes,
0: that could always tubes. come.
1: Yes. Um. God, there's so much I want to see a sequel with more Gabriel. So bad. There's there's so many. Yes, Malignant can just be a one and done, and probably will since Warner Brothers. I don't think knew what to do with it. Um.
0: I'm still not I, convinced Warner Brothers period. remembers they made it.
1: Probably not. Um. I mean, not that I would know how to market this fucking movie anyway, but, God, the amount of iconic characters and iconic horror characters Juan has left in his wake Um, that either other people have picked up or... The thing is, they've all been incidental. Like, hell, the nun was a replacement for another monster that he built that was (laughs) this amazing practical demon They went like, hmm... No, it just doesn't fit the story right. Let's just put, like, a scary nun in there. And creates, you know, something that's still pop culture currency. Jigsaw, of course, will live forever. Um,
0: even, even Mary Shaw, which is a very deliberate horror character, is still barely in dead silence and is kind of secondary to just the town as uh, the the main antagonist of that movie. It's, it's not as much of a one-to-one, like, I'm creating this type of character type of thing.
1: Yeah. Gabriel, on the other hand, was Juan going, This is a love letter to horror fans. We love horror villains. So Gabriel didn't need to be all that he was in this movie. And by all I mean all. He is just arch as shit. With his with, with ridiculous his anime weapon coat. and his his ridiculous backwards anime coat and like he wants his costume. I love that so much. He's mad when it's taken from him and he must go get it back like a fucking Batman villain. Just his like he has electricity powers because he was electroshock therapy worked worked on him and gave him electric
0: electricity <laughs> powers. It's not important. It's just I, cool and I appreciate I, that. Well, I what I fucking love is I am convinced that the only reason Gabriel has superpowers is because of the dark half.
1: There's a Which, lot of dark half in here.
0: You cannot fucking tell me that this movie does not exist because of James Wan watching the first scene of the dark half and seeing that eyeball blink in the back of that kid's head and wish, oh, if only this was the entire movie. Yeah, Everyone who up. watches The Dark Half has that moment, and James Wan did something about it.
1: It's the it's the fulfilling of the promise of that George Romero fucking uh, like his one of one big effect shot in the entire movie. And people keep going to basket case, and why there is a definitely a lot of basket case. It's fucking Dark Half. It's that beginning of Dark Half. It's holy shit. That brain has an eyeball on it. That's cool. And the lit- and uh, the story of Edward Mordrake, just the fact she calls Gabriel the devil, like, and Gabriel whispers to her, like, that's the story of Edward Mordrake. Listen to the Tom Waits song. It's great.
0: Oh, yeah. The, uh, the co-plotter, like, even flat out admitted she just did a Google search for, like, parasitic twins and, and shit like that and f- stumbled onto Edward Mordrake and was like, oh, that's a movie. Which,
1: about fucking time, I've been wanting, it like, something to be done using the concept, at least, between Edward Moore Drake and uh, – why did it take so long? Why can't we just get an Edward Moore Drake biopic or something? Oh, uh, I blanked on her name. It's by Edward Gorey.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I blanked on her name, but that was uh, Ingrid Bisou, uh, James Wan's wife and uh, frequent collaborator. Oh, I know we've been talking about James Wan this entire time, but the script by Akila Cooper, by the way, is, is it? This is uh, such a James Wan movie, and it just feels like his head poured out onto the screen. The fact that somebody was able to translate that and, and write a really, a really solid B movie script. That still manages to be smarter than it ever has to be. Like I, like I really applaud that.
1: Oh yeah, it's a B movie script with, but it's like it has a um, a movie sheen on it before it ever actually got before the camera. I, yeah, I think those other writers I... should definitely be brought up as much as possible because goddamn is just from a dialogue standpoint, that is a balancing act that is pulled off perfectly.
0: Yeah, that's one instance where I definitely would compare it to a Stuart Gordon film. where You you definitely get that sense that if nothing supernatural was going on and we just kind of hung out with these characters for a little while, it'd be all right.
1: Yeah, and honestly, I could have followed Gabriel around
0: forever. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this is the first time in a very long time I've finished a horror movie and immediately was mad that there was no merchandise. Like, I want a Gabriel Nika figure I can display on my bookshelf
1: now. Oh, yeah. I guarantee you, next Halloween, there's gonna be shit. Someone's gonna get on that. If we have nothing but trick-or-treat merchandise now, there's going to be malignant merchandise.
0: I want the dagger.
1: (laughs) I want the dagger so goddamn bad. I I want a uh, Funko of Gabriel.
0: He's already half a Funko himself, so they wouldn't have to translate anything.
1: Do a bobblehead. (laughs) I'm very excited. And and before we go, I want to shout out two things. One, shout out to every fucking actor in this movie who not only brings their A-game, puts on a fucking just clinic of balancing ridiculousness, but takes it seriously in their performance. And that is to be commended, because I think it could have been easy to read the script, look at the concept, and go, okay, it's one of those kind of movies, so we'll have some fun with the performances. No, it is it, it is taken as a serious horror movie in a performance, and that's what is authentic about it, particularly as something paying homage to European horror films. Uh, the The other big thing I'd like to bring up is... The main theme is a remix of Where Is My Mind by the Pixies, <laughs> and that is the coolest thing of any movie this year. Uh,
0: that, it, was, it was amazing seeing the rest of the internet try to figure out what that was and then collectively go, oh, it's Where Is My Mind.
1: <laughs> it was just, you had to really pay attention to the credits to, to even get it. Like okay, that's it. Is that we're not just going crazy with our own brain tumors? Thank God that makes such a cool fucking um, horror theme too. Who would have expected?
0: Oh, it, it, it's funny to go back uh, rewatching that movie and just look at the deliberate moments that's dropped too. Because e- even the fucking where is my mind sting has to have, like, an important to dramatic reason to exist in this movie.
1: <laughs> and it's also kind of playful just because that's the name of the song that's being used and <laughs> that that's the plot. So it's kind of just, like, it's having fun with itself and the mystery of also what Gabriel is or where he is. Like, where is my mind? Oh, it's actually upstairs in the
0: attic. <laughs> yeah, it's... The experience of me, Mike, and my girlfriend just sitting in his living room watching this, blind for the first time the the day it premiered, like that—that that is something I will cherish forever. Uh, this maybe is maybe one of a, my
1: favorite movie experiences.
0: Uh, this is such a wonderful group watch, and I, I've got to say, ninety percent of the time, I'm a see a movie in the theater type of girl, but. I can't imagine this experience being as good if we'd seen it in the theaters.
1: No, everyone needs to watch this as, in a in a scream party, essentially. Right? with you... Jamie Kennedy being there.
0: <laughs> this is a movie made for pausing every 15 minutes, turning to the group and going, so what does everybody think is going on?
1: And whenever you show it to somebody, you need to be able to look at them every once in a while and giggle, and they don't know why you're giggling yet. <laughs>
0: Uh, the the best experience of this movie was us pausing it, turning to each other about about twenty to thirty minutes in, and going, "This is dark half, isn't it?" <laughs> After night, not knowing if this was a ghost movie or something, or if there were aliens, <laughs> I've never been more delighted that that's where a movie was going.
1: And and just to think, you have it, like, okay, I I know exact. Okay, I get it now. I get it. And then she pulls her skull open and go, you know what? I kind of had it, but there was no way I could have predicted literally any of this. Well done. Well done.
0: Oh, she's backwards fighting.
1: (laughs) What we're saying with this episode is if you don't like malignant, you're wrong. (laughs) I'm going to be that threatening about it.
0: This has secretly been Bop Presents You're Wrong, part two.
1: (laughs) But, um... As for uh, not malignant, you can of course find us at Box Office Pulp on Twitter, Box Office Pulp Podcast on Facebook, Box Office BoxOfficePulp.com is our website where, you, of course, you can uh, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music, all other fine places podcasts can be found. I am at Lucky Deck Napier on Twitter, and Jamie?
0: And you can find me on Twitter at MondoFunky. Now go on and cut the cancer out. And like that, he's gone. So, so since we watched that, all I've been able to think is, which direction is the merchandise eventually going to go? Are we going to get lots of t-shirts and fan posters and coffee mugs that say, it's time to cut the cancer? Or are we getting, see what the cancer has become?
1: We have to get to see what the cancer has become, right? With like the knife, like, like a hand holding the knife. You know what I want more than anything, though? I want a Japanese poster for Malignant.
0: <laughs> I feel like this is a movie Japan would fucking eat up.
1: Oh, this is J-Horror up the ass. Uh, so I- I'm sure that's going to come. There's going to be some fan art. I want to see manga Gabriel so bad.
0: God, I can't wait to see the Slash Fiction.
1: Uh Oh, slash fiction. (laughs) There, I brought up a... I, I, I pointed out a pun. Are you happy, Cody? You're not even fucking here. I'm never happy. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now, please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.